It's a new season. It's a new year. It's a new semester for those of you in college. Tomorrow is the inauguration day of a new president of the United States of America. And anytime something's new, anytime there's a change of season, there's hope. I think for those of us who have felt great about the previous season, I don't know who you are. <laughs> for those of us who feel good about that, uh, you know, change is terrifying. We don't like change, of course. Um, but for everyone who's been suffering, everyone who's oppressed, change feels like maybe there's hope on the horizon. And this morning, um, I was reading in the book of Psalms, and just by way of prayer um, and, and, and centering us uh, for the sermon this evening, I want to read to you Psalm 96. Uh, it was helpful for me. Um, there's so many overlaps for the moment. Uh, but it's helpful for me to remember that 3,000 years ago, people were singing songs like this. That kingdoms come and go. Generations rise and fall. And not only does the word of the Lord remain the same, but our, our calling remains the same in every generation. We have moments where we get deceived into thinking that, you know, um, a, a rough season will always be rough and that a good season will always be good. In the meantime, the Lord is at work to redeem heaven and earth and bring all things under the feet of Jesus and to make all things new. And the people of God, when they experience the sin and brokenness in the world and the sin and brokenness in themselves, have cried out very particular songs over and over and over again. And, and Psalm 96 uh, feels like a bit of a rally cry today in light of the global pandemic, in light of the spiritual sort of apathy um, I know I'm delaying the reading of this psalm. I feel like there's so much to, to set it up with. Um, you know, recently I've been noticing just how, how little we know of the scriptures. Generationally, even, even as I do ministry in the Bible Belt, and, and, and look, Christians have largely lost their, um, the moral high ground, you know, in uh, in the past 30 years. Uh, they've lost, there's an influence in the public square. Um, and yet still in the Bible Belt, so many young folks that I meet have grown up in a church context, you know, go to youth groups, camps, those sorts of things. And, and yet when I meet so many young people, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking how little of the scriptures they know. Um, the basic questions of faith. Uh, why did Jesus die for our sins? What is it that we really believe and have hope in? Um, people are terrified to ask about hell and heaven and you know these kinds of things. And, um, and my heart breaks with how little we know of what God has provided for us in the scriptures. And there's so much uh, on top of the, the triggers for anxiety in our culture already, um, you know, a belief that, that largely is founded upon a shaky foundation is really, really hard too. Jesus is a sure foundation, but I don't think many of us know him or know the scriptures that testify to him, or in, or, or in relationship with the church in such a way that we can have the vibrant sort of stream of life that the Holy Spirit gives when the people of God are together in Jesus' name. We need a new song. We need to come back home to some basics. When I look out at the, the, the sort of moral and political and social and emotional horizon, friends, it is bleak right now. We are a polarized culture. We're people in debt. We're emotionally bankrupt. The, the, the difference between our lived embodied lives and the lives that we present on a screen are, are, are so far apart. 
anxious, we're tired. We don't know how to talk with somebody that we disagree with. Our families are falling apart. Many of us don't have very great friendships. We're lonely. And I'm not interested in blame right now. I'm interested in, 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 in realist, having a sober, real look at the world that we're in and recognizing that we have a need for something new. And it's not unique to this generation. This keeps coming over and over and over again. When I read the Psalms, I, I read the Psalms, I recognize this. So let, let's listen. I need to just, we need to see the break. Um, this is from Psalm 96. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Um, this is Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the whole earth. Sing unto the Lord and praise his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his honor to the nations and his wonders to all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly to be praised. He is more to be feared than all gods. As for all the gods of the nations, they are but idols. But it is the Lord who made the heavens. Glory and majesty are before him. Power and honor are in his sanctuary. Ascribe unto the Lord, O you families of the peoples. Ascribe unto the Lord worship and power. Ascribe unto the Lord the honor due his name. Bring offerings and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. Tell it out among the nations. The Lord is king. It is he who has made the world so firm that it cannot be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea make a noise and all that is therein. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth and with righteousness to judge the world and the peoples with his truth. Let's pray. Father, we need a new song. We need a new song. May your wonders be proclaimed to the nations. May generations tell the other generations of your truth. May we remember that you are king, that you are Lord even over the nations, and that our hope does not rest in a nation, but in your reign, in your rule, in your kingdom. May it come and may it come swiftly, Lord. Tonight, speak to us through your word. Give us what we need to be faithful to you today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Um, tonight uh, and this whole semester, um, we're going to be preaching out of 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to move all over the Bible um, each week as we talk about various aspects of of this passage, but our home is going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I know I just read the Psalms, but I want to read this together as we start. Um, so grab a Bible, use your phone if, if you can while you're watching this at the same time, or, um, or grab the scriptures. You can also just listen. Um, I'll read it to you. It's a pretty short chapter, but this is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it out of the English Standard Version. Let me grab the Bible. And it's a long way to your right, just after Romans. If you're looking for it, this is um, what the Apostle Paul wrote. This is part of a letter to the Corinthian church. I'm going to say more about Corinth in just a minute, but um, here's 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this. You may have heard this at a wedding. Um, I hope you hear it at weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, there's so much here. Oh my Lord. <laughs> um, we're gonna be unpacking this for the whole semester in various ways um, to give you kind of a framework for it. We're gonna spend uh, about four weeks on faith, four weeks on hope, four weeks on love. Um, because I just feel this tremendous conviction to help um, shore up the basics of what we actually have faith in as followers of Jesus, what it actually looks like for us to hope. Is our, is our, is our hope in Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Is, is our hope in, in the market taking a particular kind of turn? Is our hope that we can go X amount of years without sinning in a particular way? Is our hope to find a church that it doesn't take me eight years to get to know people? Those, those, each of those things in various ways maybe find things to hope for. What is the Christian hope? What is our distinct hope? Because I tell you what, when you, when you look out at the horizon of our culture and you ask folks who aren't in the church, you ask folks who aren't Christians, what is it that Christians hope for? How many of them are going to say, you know what I think Christians hope for? I think that they hope that Jesus' kingdom would come to earth. I think what they hope for is that Jesus' way of life, his vision for the world and for humanity would flourish. You know what I think they hope for? I think, you know, they pray this all the time, right? They, they don't, but they ought to, right? They pray this all the time, that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know many people who would think that's what Christians hope for. Right now, there's a whole, uh, you know, sort of subcategory of people identified as Christians that their hope is, is that Donald Trump stays in office. There's a whole subcategory of Christians that, that or people who call themselves Christians that, that I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to make a slight. I'm actually just trying to stay a, a little bit neutral as I make, I make this observation right now and not get into the weeds with you uh, about this particular topic. But, um, but there's a whole category of folks who, who, whose hope is actually in Donald Trump getting out of office. But you know what's gonna happen regardless of who's in office? We're all gonna die. You know what's gonna happen regardless of who's in office? Um, people are going to fall into habits of sin and addiction which, which tear lives apart. You know what's gonna happen regardless of who's in office? Regardless of what stimulus checks come or regardless of what job opportunities are on the horizon? 
suffering and sin and death will exist all throughout the world. The Christian hope is rooted in something bigger, friends. And, and that touches down, that needs to touch down in things like our politics, in things like our dinner tables and the way that we spend our time and our money and, and the things that we post on social media, for sure. But our hope is not ultimately in any of those things. It is in something bigger and more transcendent, which touches down and is imminent in the present moment. And Christian, what do we love? What does it look like to love? Why do we love? We're going to talk about faith, hope, and love this semester. And I hope for you as a follower of Jesus, I hope that this provides you with an amazing foundation and clarity about what it is that we believe, what our hope is in, and what we love. If you're not a Christian listening, I hope this gives you a good insight into what Christians are about and to the heart of the Christian faith. In the church of Corinth, um, to, to whom this, this letter was written, if you look at it and you go through the context of it, so you're going to find out some things. This is a church that was um, very divided. You know, everybody was kind of camped up. In the first couple chapters, Paul Paul talks about like, hey, you know, some of you, you know, you really have allegiance to like this guy. You're like that guy's followers. And others of you are like this guy's followers. And each of you think that you're like, doing this for the right reasons and you've got it better than the other person. And there's this other camp that you guys just are Jesus followers because you're like, I don't subscribe to the two-party system. I I'm a Jesus person. And Paul's like, this whole thing is a wreck. You're divided. He he's it's, The divisions are so strong and it stirs up so much emotion for the apostle Paul who wrote this letter that he actually says at one point, in, in a bit of sort of rhetoric, uh, a rhetorical hyperbole, like extremes, Paul says, um, I'm, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. And then he says, well, I mean, I did baptize like two of you, but I'm thankful I didn't baptize you because I don't want to play a part of this game. I don't want you guys going, well, I'm Paul's disciples. And then if I baptized you, I'm worried that I would be thrown into this campiness, these political divisions that you guys faced. And so they were divided they were divided, vehemently divided from each other. They were suing each other, angry with each other. The, the, the ways in which they were living their lives together in sin were so scandalous that outsiders were like, who would ever want to be a part of that Christian community because we live more ethically astute lives than even they do. So they're politically divided. They're, they're at each other's necks, like suing each other. Um, they're, they're living in scandalous ways to the outside world. Their marriages are in, in, in single lives are in shambles, and they're not really sure what to do about that. There's sexualities kind of all over the map in this way. Um, on top of all that, the ways in which they're integrating, like living lives with people uh, of totally different faiths is really confusing for folks within the church. They're trying to figure out, like, uh, you know, what does it mean to honor God in our relationships with people in the public square? So they're confused about that. And on top of all of that, there's actually two more things I want to highlight briefly. Um, they, uh, the discrepancy between the rich and the poor is so great that it's bringing shame upon the church when they gather together for meals. And finally, they're, 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 they all have different hierarchies of gifts and strengths, thinking that they're better or worse than everybody else. So there's this giant game of comparison. All right, so listen, this is about Corinth, right? They're politically divided. They're at each other's throats. They're living scandalous lives in the face of the culture. Uh, they're confused about what their relationships with people in the middle of the public square should look like and what that means for their faith. The divide between the rich and the poor is, is, is immense, and they're constantly comparing themselves to one another. Does that sound somewhat familiar? 
Like the context for 1 Corinthians maps on so well to our cultural moment. I commend to you this letter. It's a pretty scathing letter. And for the sake of context and so that you know how to read it a little bit better, this is a letter written by Paul to a church in Corinth. They were asked to sort of take this letter in and read it aloud when they gather together so they can know what he says. Now, throughout it, there's a bunch of moments where Paul's responding to things that they wrote to him. We don't have that. But we know, you'll find out if you just read it, that Paul actually says, now, uh, in response to what you said about this, I have this to say. In response to what you said about this, I have this to say. Now, concerning this, I want to say this. So the point is, these people had sent a letter to Paul and had a bunch of questions. Because of all this junk happening in their community, Paul, what is it that you want to say? What is it that you have to say? What would the Lord want to say to us through you, Paul? And this letter, first, we call it 1 Corinthians in your Bible, this letter is a response to that. I hope that's helpful for you if you look through it. That's why it kind of, it feels like a series of kind of conversation topics because there's a letter is exchanged, letters are exchanged back and forth in this way. Okay, so we are gonna be focusing on 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I wanted to set all that up to say this, that when Paul hits 1 Corinthians 13, he, he's sort of finishing responding to all these big, not quite, he's got one more, he's, he's teed up, teeing up, but, but largely he's finishing a lot of these topics that he's addressing. And, and he's looking at all the pieces kind of laying there, the, the, the divisions and, and, the, and the sin patterns uh, and, the, and the, the discrepancies between rich and poor and the comparison. And he's trying to figure out like what, does, what to say in the midst of all of this. And he has this moment where he's like, listen, if I've got like the best words, the, the, the most amazing faith, I do the greatest actions in the world, but I don't have love, it's nothing. I've got nothing. Without love, it's all of this amounts to nothing. So all these things, that all these power grabs, all these divisions, all these hierarchies you guys are creating, all these things that you think are a huge deal. Without love? I'm, and, and I'm curious, of course, how something like that might map onto our cultural moment today. No matter who you vote for, no matter what you do with your money, no matter what you, how you use your social media account, no matter what job you do, no matter what ally you are, who you're allied with, no matter how much you serve the poor, without love. And we're going to go into this. I just, you know, if you don't listen throughout the whole series and you don't read this, I got to share this with you. It's so powerful. The scriptures do not leave it up for us to define love however we want. Jesus says love is when you lay your life down for another. Christians throughout you know, the ages have, have variously described love as, as, the, as the offering of your life to ascribe worth to another. There's a sacrificial component in Christian love. We don't just get to define it however we want. Paul here says, this is what love is. And I want to just ask you, if this is what love is, are we a people who love very well? All right, this is verses, uh, you know, eight through, no, sorry, four through the beginning of eight. Listen, love is patient and kind. Are we patient and kind? to one another? And if that's what love is, can we say that we're loving? Love doesn't envy or boast. Are we an envious culture? Do we brag? Do we boast? Love isn't arrogant or rude. Are we arrogant or rude? Love doesn't insist on its own way. How much do we insist on our own way? 
shopping in the right place, listening to the right music, something, something as basic as that, but also in terms of who we vote. Don't I vote according to what I want for me? Is it possible that, that for a Christian that we actually ought to think about voting on behalf of others? Not even just voting, but living on behalf of others too? Do we insist on our own way? Love is not irritable or resentful. Friends, I feel like we've got the market cornered on irritability. We are so easily offended today. Paul says that's not what love is, though. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings. Do we get excited when bad is, is happening or happening to somebody? Does that make us kind of excited when somebody gets it, in a way? Or, or when we see evil being uh, occurring or uh, something which isn't just or merciful or kind happening, what, do we rejoice at it? Love rejoices with the truth. Friends, we don't even know what the truth is today, right? We've got fact-checking for fact-checking for fact-checking. This is like a post-truth era where none of us think anything is true. It's all spin and stats. Love rejoices at truth. It's hungry for, 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 for its feet to be on solid ground. Love bears all things. Do we give up under heavy loads? Love believes all things. Are we so cynical and skeptical? Love hopes for all things. Are we despairing? Love endures all things. Do we stop short? Love never ends. Is our love contingent? Does our love stop? Or are we willing to love to the end? You see what I'm saying? This, this chapter is nuts. Paul is looking at the Corinthian church and he's going, listen, all of these things that you guys are dealing with, and he kind of goes point by point through each of them. He finishes with this kind of summary of sorts and he says, listen, Listen, without love, none of this matters. None of this matters. I'm just a noisy symbol or a clanging gong. I'm nothing, he says, without love. And this is where this lands for me today and as I look to, the, to sort of the rest of the semester. As Paul keeps going through this chapter, he talks about how like, um, that right now we see in a mirror dimly. Right now, right now we see things in part but we're in this process of our sight coming, of things getting clearer as history unfolds, as we grow in Christ, as, as God's redemptive purposes begin to be manifested to us. In recent years, have we not, as a culture, had sort of scales fall off our eyes and been seeing injustices and patterns of injustice in the past? Some of us have been seeing this for a long time. Okay? But for many of us, it's, it's like the light's been getting turned on. It was dim and now it's brighter. Now I can't fathom saying the things that I said 20 years ago or and increasingly thinking or feeling the things I thought or felt 20 years ago because what I'm doing is giving up childish ways. And, and it's not so innocuous as childish. Violent, harmful, death-bringing ways immature ways that actually bring death upon the world. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became adult, I gave up my childish ways. This is something that happens just throughout our life. Paul is also talking about as God begins to reveal his redemptive purposes in and through us, he invites us to give up our childish ways and to grow into Christ's likeness in him, to know even as we're fully known, he says. And then the kicker, you know what remains when all this is done? You know what will last? Do you know what will outstrip this cultural moment? Because Donald Trump, our current president today, as I'm recording this, he's going to be an asterisk or a footnote in a history book 500 years from now. He might be like a Jeopardy question thing or something. 
rest in peace, Alex Trebek. But do you know what I mean? Like, like what will outstrip this moment? The sort of worries that you and I might have about friendships or romance or, or what job are we going to do next or, or how long is the global pandemic going to last? That, you know, there's a renewed interest, of course, in like the Spanish flu and like various sort of pandemics in history because we're going through one right now. But five years ago, who of us were, were felt super impacted at a daily level by, by the, uh, you know, sort of global pandemics that have come before us? Like this will pass. That not to make light of this moment, this is, we, we are only living right now in this moment and we must face it. And we, yes, we can try to hide from it, but, but our invitation is to take it very seriously and respond faithfully for the glory of God and the good of humankind in the midst of this moment for sure. It will pass. The things that we worry about, I see this with my kids all the time and I, I, I probably should, um, you know, use this as a good example because I'm often quite irritated as I say this and that's not loving according to the scriptures, right? But often, you know, one of my kids will just freak out about something, like totally freak out. I, I got one daughter who in the last couple of weeks, she started to develop like this little tick almost. Like every time she can't find something, she goes to like a level 10 panic about it. And I'm like, for real, it's like in our house somewhere. Like, well, hey babe, like the last like two weeks, every time you've lost something, haven't we found it in our home? Yes, well, we're gonna find this one too. And what I'm trying to tell her is it's, hey, this moment right now, we're gonna get through this. Now, now, we might find out that you lost the thing and it's gone, but you know what? I guarantee, I guarantee you when you're 40, you're not gonna like feel like your life has been totally wrecked because of that hat that we couldn't find. But right now, it feels so important. I, I wanna be careful because there are actually things that you and I are going through today that really are important and they're not like a lost hat. And we, and we are invited to deal with them soberly and, and with the seriousness and with the gratitude and with the sadness and with the justice and with the love and with the kindness and with the attention that they deserve for sure. But one day, friends, all of this will pass. What will remain? What will remain when, when, the, when five elections later, something's happening? Those of you, if you're a college student, you probably, you probably don't know much about and don't have any sort of emotional attachment to what it was like to live through the Nixon era or to know what it was like to live just before World War II when, when you know, historians tell us that that cultural moment felt a lot like this or in the early 60s when it felt a lot like this. But we, if we didn't live through that, it's hard to feel attachment to that. Those are important moments in history that we can learn from and grow through, but they pass. What remains? What remains? Paul says faith, hope, and love. And what would it look like for us to have faith, hope, and love in things and for things that will last? Things which instruct how I'm supposed to live in the present. Because you know, my faith in Jesus does instruct how I vote. It instructs the sort of small things that I hope for and have faith in today my retirement account or lack thereof, the, the way in which I treat my body, how I spend my time. My faith in Jesus eternally, uh, you know, that, that, the way in which that faith sort of lands and manifests today in my life means I love differently today, but my faith, hope, and love are ultimately in Jesus. And increasingly, I want God to show me what it means to do that and to have it in him. And right now, friends, on the eve of the inauguration of a new president, Oh my Lord, Lord have mercy. 
the, the social media stream and the buzz of conversations all around our culture are revealing to me that all of us have all of our hopes in, in uh, not in ultimate things. We have our hopes in these temporary, fractured things which cannot possibly bear the weight of our hope and our faith. We're panicking about something which will be forgotten later. We think the whole, you know, hope, our hope for our family is resting in, this, in, in, in one of the decisions in the political office. And quite frankly, to me, if it, I'm stepping out of biblical exegesis right now into cultural commentary, so it's less, I have much less authority in this arena. But friends, how different did 2021 feel from 2020? I suspect that that's how different it's going to feel when our new president comes into office. <laughs> so um, I, there are differences between the two men and between their two sort of desires for the nation or whatever else. But I mean, like, generally speaking, friends, the march of time is going to keep going. Uh, and we are still called to the same thing, to faith, hope, and love in something bigger. And what I want so bad for you and for me is I want to become people who look more like Christ in the present age. What would it look like if 20 years from now, when you asked non-Christians in our culture, what do Christians hope for, have faith in and love? What would it look like if they said, man, they're really all about Jesus and his kingdom. And I don't know how I feel about Jesus, but they're totally sold on Jesus. Rather than, you know, Christians are all about a political issue or something. About 10 to 15 years ago, there was a book that came out um, called Unchristian. Um, David Kinnaman, and I think with the help of the Barna Group, did some research on what is it that non-Christians think about Christians. Uh, and there was really five sort of summaries and uh, takeaways, and it was like they're, they're homophobic, they're hypocritical, they're judgmental, they, um, uh, you know, I forget, I forget the other two. None of them were good. Like they were all like these, these like, oh my gosh, like, that's a terrible thing if everybody thinks that's what we're about all the time. What if that could change? What if that could change? The only way it's gonna change, of course, is if we live differently. I wish, um, you know, I, I'm middle-aged, I guess, 41. Um, I, I still feel young. Sometimes I feel old around college students. I don't know. But uh, I still got a few more years left to, to kind of uh, try to move the needle, I suppose. Um, but I wish that I could hand off something better to you. I wish that the local church looked um, more like Christ right now. It does in a lot of hidden ways around the world. But the local church in the public square in the West right now, she doesn't look like Jesus. The, the, the local church throughout the world in the prisons with the poor on the front lines of service work totally looks like Jesus, uh, kind of hiding out on the fringes everywhere doing ministry with people. But the church in the West and the public square doesn't look like Jesus very well right now. I wish that were better for you. I wish we were handing off a more secure family environment and marketplace and small town community and cities. And It's just not the reality of where we are. What I do know is I have hope as we proclaim God's excellencies from one generation to the next, I have hope in handing off the reins to you and you looking more like Christ and you learning from a generation in front of you or two, learning from some mistakes, looking at the cultural moment and saying, you know what? The kingdom of the world has been laid bare for me in this moment. The, the, the economic insecurity, the robust anxiety, the hypocrisy that exists on social media, the comparison game, the, the, the burnout from trying to get more faster to nowhere in particular, I, I, the, 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 the sort of utter polarization, the lack of unkindness, the, the moral 
disgustingness of our culture, um, I hope that when you look at that, you go, ugh, that is a kingdom that has shown its fruit. I want to see what the kingdom of God's fruit looks like, and I'm going to live in that kingdom, and I'm going to let that fruit be on display in my life that people might see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. This semester, as we talk about faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians 13, I want to invite you to have faith, hope, and love in something bigger because I want you to experience the transformation into Christ-likeness that he promises will happen if we follow him. I want to end with this. About 2,500 years ago, there was a Jewish girl named Hadassah. And uh, more famously, her, her, her name, uh, she had another name, Esther, from the book of Esther. Uh, and she, uh, at a very particular strategic point in history, was asked to be the queen of Persia, the greatest empire in the world at the time. Uh, and if you read that story of Esther, which takes about 30 minutes to read, um, who would want to be this king's wife? His previous wife uh, didn't want to do what he said all the time, basically, uh, and he, he didn't like that. So he exiled her, and he started passing new rules where women had to sort of live in these sort of new submissive ways uh, to their husbands. This is the Persian Empire, right? Um, and then this king had his eyes on Hadassah, uh, Esther. Um, and she was rightfully afraid, wasn't quite sure what to do. And one of her relatives uh, had a strategic position in the kingdom. His name was Mordecai. And Mordecai recognizes her strategic opportunity. He recognizes that she has the ability to leverage her influence for something really cool right now. And Mordecai actually says, listen, regardless of what you do, God's going to do what God's going to do. God is going to march history to its redemptive end. He'll bring help from some corner of the kingdom if he needs to. But you've got an opportunity right now, Esther, to take part in it. And then he says this, who knows whether or not you were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. I've been thinking about that for the past month. Because I've been thinking about how many of us wish that maybe we lived in a different time, <laughs> like in a different moment, you know, had different contexts and circumstances. Uh, but friends, we, and I, this is, you know, a sobering thing to say. It's very real, of course, and obvious, but we don't get to choose when we're born. And who knows whether or not God brought us into this time for a particular reason right now. This is the life that God has offered us. This is the life that he's given us and we live at the precise time that he has given to us. And any and everything that we do, any and every way that we receive and respond to God ever and always happens in the present moment. Who knows whether or not God brought you into our kingdom, into our world, into your family, into the globe, into this moment at your age in the midst of a global pandemic, at this turn of a political moment, maybe. Who knows whether or not God brought you specifically for such a time as this? And I want you to ask all semester, Lord, what is it that you want to accomplish in and through my life? Because your son Jesus sits on the throne, so my hope doesn't need to stay with the kings here, but with the king of kings because my faith is in your ability to finish what you start in me and carry out sort of your redemptive purposes to their end because you love me so that I might love and my love is not dependent upon everybody else's love for me on the likes and the follows and the fame. Lord, because of all of that, what would you have me do today? What childish ways would you want me to leave behind? What adult ways would you want me to embrace? 
What is the Lord up to in your life, friends? What might he want to accomplish in and through you over the next semester? I hope that you and I together can discover real life in Jesus in the midst of this present moment. I know there's ample reasons why we might want to stay in bed all day. Everybody's exhausted, I know. But you know what everybody needs? They need to hear a new song. They need to hear that the, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and in this present moment, he sits on the throne.